0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together. This afternoon we turn, first of all, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the verses 1 to 13. We're dealing this afternoon with the matter of adoption, being part of the family of God, And there's a number of pivotal scripture passages. John 1 is one of them. Galatians 4 is another, as is 1 John 3 and Romans 8. But we're going to restrict our reading first to John 1, a part of that, and then to Galatians 4. We begin then with the gospel according to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of Father's will, but born of God. Let me turn to our second New Testament reading from Galatians 4, 1-7. And maybe we'll backtrack a bit to chapter three, verse twenty six, because that's really where this whole section begins, to get the context. So we begin then with Galatians three, twenty-six. So you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Paul writes. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no longer or no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also... When we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. But a son, and since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. I preached to you this afternoon from the Word of our God, as the Church confesses, and summarizes this in the first part of Lord's Day thirteen, question and answer thirty-three. Why is He called God's only begotten Son? Since we also are children of God. Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption, through grace, for Christ's sake. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, what does Christmas have to do with family? At first glance, the answer is nothing. There is no connection, there is no relationship, Christmas... And family are two separate, different things. But are they? Are they really? If that's true, then why is Christmas considered such a family time? If there is any time of year when families make an effort, an extra effort to get together, it is then. And indeed, is there any time of year when people tend to miss their families more? And does this longing not go a long way to explaining why airports are so crowded with people and mailboxes are so stuffed with letters and cards and gifts? Somehow Christmas makes us sentimental. It pulls at our heartstrings. It makes us think a family. And why is that? Of course, it may have something to do with the fact, the simple fact, that it's considered to be the biggest, brightest, and best feast of the year. It may also have something to do with the Christmas story, because in it we meet Zachariah and Elizabeth, who receive John, and they become a family. It may relate to Mary and Joseph who received Jesus and become a second family. It may also have something to do with all of those families who were devastated in Bethlehem when Herod ordered the murder of all of those little baby boys. In short, there are any number of family themes and connections running through the Christmas narrative. But you know, when all is said and done we still haven't identified the real connection between Christmas and family. And to do that, we need to take a closer look this afternoon at Lord's Day 13, which is really all about family. I'm thinking of the question, why is he called God's only begotten son, since we also are children of God? To which the Catechism responds, we, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. Now this answer is connected to Christmas. Indeed, more than perhaps anything else, it's what connects Christmas and family. If you wonder how, well, I preached to you this afternoon the following theme, Catechism Advent, Welcome to God's Glorious Family. Beloved, here in Lord's Day 13, the Catechism teaches us that while God has one natural son called Jesus, He has many, many more sons and daughters. And indeed, it's stressing that together, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, and all of these sons and daughters everywhere form one huge, wonderful, surprising, international family. If you're a believer today, then you belong to the international family of God. And now the first question comes along, it's this. When did this family really come into existence? When did it start? What's its origin? For an answer, we need to look again at our first scripture reading taken from John 1. Consider the words of verse 11, He came to that which was His own. Notice those words, He came. That's actually a reference to Christmas, to Bethlehem, to his birth. And next we're told to whom he came, namely to that which was his own. In other words, when he came, he came to his own people. He was born a Jew, and he came to live among his own Jewish kind. But what happened? What was the result of this coming? Well, it says in verse 11, to his own did not receive him. And you know what a devastating message is contained in those very few words. What a tragedy. What a, what a setback. For here comes not just any Jew to the Jews. No, here comes their, their hope, their consolation. Here comes their long-awaited Messiah. Here comes the answer to all of their sins and fears and prayers and miseries. But they did not receive him. They didn't welcome him. They didn't embrace him. They didn't run to him. A moment before John relates that when he came into the world, the world did not recognize him. And, you know, in some ways we can understand that. But yet, that his own, very own people did not recognize him or receive him is inexcusable and incomprehensible. How terrible that his own kind turned their backs on him. How awful that his own wider family, his very own flesh and blood, shut him out. So what now? Does this rejection make him call it quits? Is this a case of salvation? Forget it. Now notice John writes further that to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, instead of giving up, He reaches out even more. Suddenly, it's no longer about him going to those who are his own, but it's about him going to those who will receive him. It's about him reaching out to people everywhere and welcoming them into his family and into the family of God the Father. To all who receive him, John writes, he gives the right, the privilege, the honor, the status to become members of the divine family. So you can say, beloved, Christmas is about the birth of Christ. But it's also about the start and the beginning of the worldwide family of God. That's when we as Gentiles receive the right to become children of God. That's when and where this greatest of all families really began. But now a second question. What about the Jews? What about God's Old Testament people? For an answer for that, we need to go to the second scripture reading from Galatians chapter 4. And you know, there Paul writes, and it's worth looking at again, he writes, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. And so also, when, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now, what does all of that mean? It's... A bit convoluted, right? Well, again, you can easily tell it's actually all about family. Words like heir, child, estate, guardian, trustees, rights, sons. Give it all away. But what is the Apostle Paul really saying? Well, for openers, you need to keep in mind that here he is writing to his fellow countrymen, to Jews. But then to Jews who have become Christians, And he's writing to them about their status. Actually, he's writing to them about their change of status. And indeed, he's telling them that Christmas, or the birth and the coming of Jesus Christ, has fully and radically affected them and their situation as well. Look at what they were before. Before the time had fully come. Before Christ was born of woman. Before he came. Back in the days of the Old Testament, Paul writes, you are all a bunch of minors. You're all underage. You may have been sons and daughters of God, but but you had to listen to all those trustees and all those guardians. And you know, in some ways, Paul says, you weren't any different than a slave. You were an heir and waiting. Why, still today, it can sometimes be that way. You may be the heir to a great title. But as long as you have not reached the age of maturity or majority Or the time set by your father to take over, you are a little more than a servant. I'm sure that if he could speak openly and from the heart, Prince Charles would express the same sentiments. He's an heir in waiting. He's waiting for a mother to die who doesn't show any propensity to die. He's waiting for a throne. And and all the while that he's waiting, he's in limbo. And in a sense, he has to do as he's told by mom. And the same goes for someone who is supposed to inherit a vast fortune at the age of 30. Before that date, they live under budgets and restrictions and limitations and conditions and regulations. And all in all, it makes for a very frustrating business. And that, Paul writes, pretty well sums up the position of the Jews and the believers in the Old Testament. They were mostly frustrated heirs and waiting. But waiting for what? Waiting for the time to fully come. Waiting for God. Waiting for God to send his son. Waiting for Christmas. And now at last, finally writes Paul, the time did come. God sent his son in the fullness of time. Born of woman, born under the law. And why, why in this way? In order to redeem those under the law. You know, the key word there is redeem, right? And redeem means to set people free from bondage through the payment of a price. And what's the price? How much did he pay? Well, you can read that in the next question and answer of the catechism. He he pays with his blood, with, with his life. He doesn't pay with silver or with gold. No, it's with blood, precious blood, the precious blood of the Son of God. And what does that blood do? That blood liberates. It redeems, it sets free. And so, beloved, it's thanks to the birth and the coming of Jesus Christ and thanks also to his life and death that these Old Testament believers receive their full rights finally as sons. And thanks to the work of the same Son of God, we as Gentiles receive our rights as well. Today, Jews and Gentiles receive their full rights the sons and daughters of God. And you know what that means? Practically speaking, it means if you're a Jew, no more trips to the temple, no more... Expensive, time-consuming trips to Jerusalem. No more spilt blood. No more costly animal sacrifices. No more legal hoops to jump through. No more priests to go through in order to get to God. No more, you can eat this, but you can't eat that or that or that. You're now sons and daughters. You can now live as God's free sons. And daughters. As his children. But all the while realize. Realize what your new status. And freedom. Cost. Never. Forget. That it took blood. To purchase. Your freedom. Human blood. Divine blood. Messianic blood. The father paid a lot. You and I, together, we cost him the life of his one and only begotten son. The son paid a lot. You and I, together, cost him his name, his honor, his life, his health, his reputation, his peace. Our sonship, in other words, was not cheap. Our full rights came as great cost to God the Father, and God the Son. So we've seen a little bit about when we became children of God and what it means to be children of God, but you may also be asking about the where. In other words, just where does the heart and the center of this sonship lie? Paul writes that it lies in this. Because you are sons... God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Elsewhere, you know, he writes pretty much the same thing. If you look at Romans 8, verse 15, he says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you have received the Spirit of Sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So the question may be asked, what is now the clearest sign or indication of our new status? Where does the proof lie that we have received full rights as sons and daughters of God? Think about that for a moment. Where does the proof, where does the indication lie? You know, for some people it's rather clear. You and I know, the moment Prince Charles gets a royal crown put on his head, he becomes king. The moment that the son receives the keys to the estate, he's arrived. What about us? What proves that we have... Arrived. Does it have something to do with how we look? Does it have something to do with how we talk or walk or dress or spend or what we drive or live in or holiday to? The answers are all no, 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 no. But rather, beloved, realize this: the proof of our sonship, says Paul, is in. Are praying. And the key is to be found in that expression, Abba, Father. In other words, true sons and daughters know that they have entered into this wonderful, glorious relationship. Their prayers make that obvious. Because their prayers have an address. They rise to the great and majestic Father in heaven. They're not inward. They're not outward. No, they're always upward. Their eyes are up. Their words are up. Their hearts are up. Everything is up to our Father in heaven. And not only do their prayers have an address, they also have content. Content. They're filled with, with confidence and boldness. They insist that His Father is their life source, that that He's their pillar, their, their refuge, their fortress, their watcher, their keeper. They look to Him for strength and hope and confidence and love and care and guidance. There is the sense, the sense that of no longer having to do it all in your own strength. That's what fills our prayers. And there's also surrender and submission. In that regard, think of our Savior in Gethsemane. At a certain point, he prays, and you can find that in Mark 14, verse 36, Abba, Father. Maybe that's where Paul got it from, from Jesus. He prays, Abba, Father. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, real children, true sons and daughters, are not in the first place concerned about their wills, their wants, but about what their father thinks and desires. A true son Jesus Christ declares that his life is not about his own will. But about his father's will. That's what makes him the obedient son. And at the same time, he sets the standard and the example for all of us. This life, beloved, is not about your will, your wants, your desires, your pleasures, your pastimes. I know the world is constantly trying to tell you that it is, but it's not. It's about listening to God, doing his will, honoring his name. And so you see, beloved, there is a sense in which the proof of our sonship lies in our praying. It is in all of our praying. Indeed, do we pray? Do we pray to our Heavenly Father? Do we pray boldly, humbly, constantly, continually to Him? When's the last time you said, Abba, Father? Of course, you might think this is kind of impossible. All this praying business. Well, yeah, that's true. In a sense, it is kind of impossible. In your own strength, it's impossible. But look who else is there. The Spirit is there. And indeed, the Apostle Paul anticipates that. He says in Galatians that that God the Father knows how weak and vulnerable and timid we are. And that's why he sends the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. And he will help us to pray like a true son and a true daughter. He'll help you to pray like a member, a real member of this most wonderful family of God. And so, beloved, we've looked at the when and the what and the where of our sonship. That brings us to the why. Why does God bother? If you ask yourself that question, why does God bother? Why does God elect, call, and seek out so many, many sons and daughters? What's his intent and goal? Well, you can say that it lies in the last word of Galatians four, verse seven. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now, yeah, there you have that word "heir" again. You may notice that in this Galatian passage, Paul uses it in two ways. First, in in verse one, he says that when a child is an heir, it can be a thing of long waiting and much patience. It can make you feel like a slave. And second, Paul says in verse 7 that when a son or daughter of God has, has entered into his or her full rights, he or she is still an heir. Now, you need to realize it's different with the world in which we live. Once Prince Charles becomes King Charles III, if he ever does, He will no longer be an heir, he will have arrived. And also, when the heir to a vast estate receives or reaches the age of majority, he stops being an heir, and he can start spending the money. But it's not the case with us as believers once we enter into our full rights as sons and daughters of God, we do not stop being heirs. And why not? Very simply because there's more to come. Because God is not finished with us because God has a lot more if you'll excuse the expression up his sleeve. What does he have? Well, you can catch a glimpse of it in Romans 8 that other great sonship passage. Read, for example, Romans 8, verse 17 with me. You can find it. Page 1757. Romans 8, verse 17. Now, if we are children... Then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You know, here the Apostle Paul approaches this matter from another angle. And he says that with children of God as, as full rights, we are still heirs. But how can we still be heirs? You may wonder, what more is there? Well, there is this, beloved. There's the glorious world to come. There is the new heaven and the new earth to explore and experience. There is the new Jerusalem to discover. There is an eternal future filled with joy and glory and wonder. It's only when that future arrives in all of its fullness will our sonship come to its final expression. Only then will we cease to be heirs, for then the heirs will have entered into the complete splendor of their perfect. Inheritance. On that day, our Father in Heaven will repeat what the father of the prodigal son said to the older brother. My son, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. Yes, one day, everything that God has in store for us, Will be ours. No more waiting, no more guessing, no more speculating. Instead, there will be complete and utter enjoyment. And then at last we will really, really know what it means to be an heir, a son, or a daughter of God, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. But, remember, one, one little more but very crucial, essential thing. And what's that? Well, it's the how of this sonship. Just how do we become and how do we remain children of God? sons of the heavenly Father, heirs of life eternal? Well, the answer, beloved, is actually embedded in in a few words that you find in John 1, if you go back to it. And here's the whole verse, verse 12. Yet, and this is crucial, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what are those few essential critical words? In other words, to those who believed in his name. You see, receiving is all about believing. To receive the sonship, the glorious sonship of God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit. You and I need to believe, to be committed, and convicted, and convinced. So I leave you with a question, do you, do you believe Maybe you say that's a silly question. Of course we believe. We wouldn't be here if we didn't believe. But, you know, sometimes we need to ask that silly question. Because at bottom it's not so silly at all. Do you believe? Are you here because you believe? You can be here because you got friends, you got family, or you think this is a neat way to get eternal life insurance, or whatever. But the heart of the matter is, do you believe? Believe in the only Son of God. If you believe, then I can say to you, enter into the joy of your Master and Father. Oh, and welcome to the family. Amen.